Well, good evening to my Thursday night crowd, and good morning to those of you watching on Sunday morning. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are continuing in a series on the nature of love and what it calls us to. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll just ask this. You know, have, if, I don't know if you've noticed that there is a difference between how we treat permanent things and how we treat temporary things. So like if you have kids and they get hold of a permanent marker, are you aware that you treat permanent things very different than you treat temporary things, right? I have young ones and every once in a while the, uh, the wall gets a little marked up and I'm always hoping that that's a Crayola washable and it usually turns out that it is not, right? You also know, like if you think about the difference between getting a permanent tattoo versus a temporary tattoo, those are very significantly different things, right? If you're at Hershey Park and they got the little temporary tattoo stand, you'll get one of those. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's gone in two days. If you're getting the other kind of tattoo, you better really, really think about it, right? And so there's a difference between permanent things and temporary things. As we turn to our text today, what we're going to see is the relationship between a permanent thing and an impermanent thing, or a permanent thing and a temporary thing. That's what Paul wants to highlight for us today. And one of the things that we'll notice about the difference between something that's permanent and something that's impermanent is that often, in certain, in certain types of relationships, the thing that is permanent defines and determines the way we think about the thing that's impermanent. The thing that's permanent defines and determines how we utilize the thing that's impermanent. And let me give you an example of that, right? Marriage and dating. Marriage is supposed to be a permanent thing, right? And dating is a temporary thing. And so the way that we date, the impermanent thing, is informed by and determined by, or at least should be, the way we think about the permanent thing, marriage. Whether it's dating our spouse and what we do and don't do and what we think about and how we treat and live and love in the midst of dating kind of determines. And by the way, that's true of the impermanent thing of dating someone who doesn't ultimately become your spouse. You should date them in a way that is informed by the fact that there's going to be, Lord willing, a permanent thing in your future. And so the way you date that person should build you up and help prepare you for that permanent thing that is yet to come, even if it isn't with that person that you're dating. Does that make sense? Sometimes in certain scenarios, the permanent thing determines the way we live in and utilize and think about the impermanent thing. And that's exactly the relationship that Paul wants us to see in 1 Corinthians tonight. So let's look. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 12, which really convey one thought. One thought through the kind of the end of the chapter here. I'll stop short of verse 13 because we're going to do a summary of this whole series next week together. So in case maybe you missed some weeks or it's just good after spending 10 weeks or I guess at this point nine weeks having pondered love and in very specifically nuanced ways, what I wanted to do is end our time in this book and this chapter together by, by just doing a recap for us, just going back through and saying, these are all the ways God instructs us to love. So um, hopefully that will be useful to you. I know for me, you get 10 weeks in and I, I'm on week 10 and I forgot what week one was. So it's good to kind of go back and refresh and remember. So we'll do that next week. But let's look at it together. Let's read the whole chapter then together says this, beginning in verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now we come to our text for tonight. Verse eight, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So the question I want us to ask tonight, this is kind of our big idea, the the question the text is really begging us to ask in those verses eight through 12 is this, is what can I learn about serving God using the gifts that he's given me from love's permanence and spiritual gifts in permanence. Let me repeat that. What can I learn about how to serve God? How, are we, how is our service of him informed by the fact that love is permanent and spiritual gifts are impermanent? That's really the thing that Paul wants us to wrestle with tonight. You remember how at the beginning, the outside of this series, and I've mentioned it a few times, I brought a chainsaw up here, and I said, our aim is to grow into maturity, and Paul's point is then that mature Christians get chainsaws. They're the kind of people that can handle really weighty types of responsibility. They can handle gifts that God would pour out upon them, skill sets maybe, or, or uh, mindsets, or, or, uh, or areas of leadership perhaps, whatever it may be. They can handle things because they have maturity. In order to be mature, you have to what, church? Does everybody remember? You have to love, right? That's, that's the marker of Christian maturity, not having all these great gifts, but love is. And so now, having kind of identified that love is the marker of maturity and then giving us an explanation, well, love is patient and it's kind and, and so on and so forth. Now he comes back to the idea of those gifts, which aren't unimportant and they're not, they're not I'm gonna use a double negative, they're not, not good, right? They are good. And yet he's saying, there's a, there's a thing that I need you to see in order to use these gifts well, and that is the relationship between the permanence of love and the impermanence of the gifts. He wants to highlight their impermanence for a reason. Again, not to say they're unimportant, but to help us understand how to utilize them. So this is really all about learning how to use the chainsaw, yes? This is all about learning how to take the chainsaw that God gives you, which is your spiritual gifts, your skill sets, your, and, and beyond that, by the way, not just your spiritual gifts, but anything God, any good thing God places in your life, how will you then utilize it well? How will you wield it well? Will you have the maturity to utilize the chainsaw is kind of the question in front of us. So three things then that we see tonight about what we can learn about serving God from the love's permanence and spiritual gifts impermanence. Let me just list those for you, okay, in case you're taking notes. Number one is that all my gifts exist to make God known. That's the first observation. All my gifts exist to make God known. The second observation is this. Love and knowing God are inescapably linked. Love and knowing God are inescapably, inescapably linked. And then the third is that my gifts must be used in love. So you can see the flow of thought there, hopefully. My gifts must be used in love. So my gifts exist to make God known. 
Love and knowing God are inescapably linked. In other words, there's a relationship between uh, understanding love and knowing God, which is what those gifts exist for. And then take that third step. Therefore then, what we learn from this text is, we then must utilize the gifts God gives us if they're aimed at helping people know God and knowing God and loving God are linked, then we must utilize our gifts deeply sort of saturated in, entrenched in love. And so really tonight, church, what this is, is I hope what it is is water for a weary soul, that if you're weary and you find that your service of God is maybe taking on more the form of a duty, uh, of something you, you kind of do dryly because you have to, that tonight you would hear a call to return and re-engage, revive your heart into love, being the animating power behind the use of your gifts, behind your service of him, to be filled again with that. That would, that would be my hope. So let's then take those one at a time. I said the first observation is that all my gifts exist to make God known. So let's go back to the text and see how, where we see that. So beginning in the, right after he says love never ends, all right? So he talks about love's permanence in verse eight in the first little sentence, love never ends. And then he goes on to, by comparison say, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So right there, he's pointing out these spiritual gifts, the same ones he talked about at the beginning of the chapter that the Corinthians were so proud of, that they had a prophetic gift, that they had the gift of speaking in tongues, that they had the gift of knowledge. Now, when he talks about knowledge here, he's not talking about general knowing, which is how he's gonna utilize knowledge later in the chapter when he says, I will be fully known, I will know even as I am fully known. There he's talking about general knowing, general knowledge, like intimate, close, personal relationship. Right, But here, he's talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge, the idea of being able to kind of know information about God and then apply it wisely. That, that's how 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 talks about it. So he's talking about those spiritual gifts and he's highlighting the ones that the Corinthians are pretty proud about, ones that they seem to be utilizing in a way that is less than ideal. And he's saying to them, don't you know that those gifts are going to cease? They're not going to exist forever. They'll pass away and then he goes on in verse nine to say, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. So what he's saying there, church, is that part of the reason we know that these gifts won't last forever is that they're only an imperfect or a partial expression of whatever it is they exist to do. And he's gonna get to that in a second. But whatever these gifts are for, whatever they exist to accomplish, they can't do it perfectly. And therefore he sees them as a placeholder. He says they exist for a time, but they won't exist forever. They are impermanent because they do a good job, but not the best job, if you will. And so then he goes on to say in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, when the perfect comes, there he's referring to the return of Christ. When Christ comes in all his perfection, and he ushers in the perfect new heavens and the new earth. When he brings that about, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now let's make a real point there about that metaphor. Sometimes we read that and we think that he might be saying that the use of spiritual gifts like tongues or prophecy or knowledge, the ones he listed, or teaching or service or whatever, you know, your gifts are. That he's perhaps calling those immature or childish. That's not what he's doing. He's simply using the metaphor of childhood and adulthood to make the point that children have one experience and one reality, and when they become adults, they have a different experience and a different reality. You don't do the same things, hopefully, 
when you're adults that you did when you were a child. That's all he wants, that's the only point he wants to make from that. You don't want to read too deeply into that as if he's calling spiritual gifts childish. They're not, they're important, they're gifts from the Lord. But he's saying that those things will cease in the same way, in the same way that certain things that you used to do in your childhood have ceased now that you've come into adulthood. And then now go to the next verse, because here's where we really get, in verse 12, an understanding of the purpose of spiritual gifts. In verse 12, he says this. Let me find my spot here. I lost it. All right, here we go. It says, I gave up childish ways at the end of verse 11. Now verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So, so another analogy. First analogy, right, is childhood versus adulthood. Second analogy now is the idea of a mirror and looking into a mirror. And imagine that it's a mirror that you're getting, a, maybe the lighting's not good, whatever it may be, but you're looking into it and you're getting some picture of what perfection and goodness looks like, right? But you're not getting the full picture of it. He's alluding there to something about the purpose of spiritual gifts. They exist to do what? Look at the next phrase. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So right there in verse 12, what he's telling us is the purpose of the spiritual gifts that you and I exercise, whatever God gives us if we're in Christ, purpose of our service is to make God known, is to make him visible. And those spiritual gifts do that like a mirror might do that. They make him known partially, but not fully. And so we're getting a partial experience and a partial understanding, an imperfect understanding of the nature and goodness of God. We see it and it's good and we love it. Believe me, is it enough for us to treasure him? Yes, church? Absolutely. He gives such understanding of himself. And yet, even as great as the understanding we can gain from Scripture is, the understanding we have from the Spirit's indwelling in our hearts and illuminating the person of Christ to us, as great as the experience of the knowledge of God can be through the fellowship of the saints, as great as the knowledge of God can be through the experience of prayer and waiting on Him and seeking Him and being with Him and the intimate fellowship of all those things, they pale in comparison to what it will be like when the perfect comes, when Christ comes and we see Him face to face and we know Him fully even as we are right now fully known by him. So the implication here is this, is that our gifts, the things that he's given us to serve him with, they exist to make him known, both within ourselves and so that others might know him. Now that's a really simple observation to make from all the explanation, the long explanation that I just gave you there from the text. But here's what I wanna say about that. Here's what I wanna say. Is that though they, uh, sorry, the Corinthians... They give us an example of becoming enamored with our gifts themselves and not the purpose for which they exist. And so one of the warnings that we can take from this very simple observation that whatever God's given you, whether it be a house or a family or an intellectual gift or a job, whatever it is, whether it be a spiritual gift like exhortation or teaching, it exists to make him known. And it's always good for us to ask ourselves, am I utilizing everything that God's placed in my hands so that others and myself would know more of him? Because that's its purpose. And if you're not using it towards that end, whatever it may be, then you're failing to use it for its purpose. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever bought a piece of Ikea furniture, has anyone ever had that frustrating experience? Right, you buy a piece of Ikea furniture and there's like six pieces left over afterwards and you're not sure how. You follow the instructions exactly. 
And yet at the end of it, there's these pieces and you're like, I don't even know where they go. So you, maybe you slap them on somewhere, maybe you throw them away somewhere, but you have no idea what their purpose is and you just can't figure it out and you're frustrated. Some of you have done Ikea perfectly and we don't like you people because the rest of us struggle, all right? No, I'm not kidding. We love you, we love you. I mean, this is all about love, right? But that Ikea furniture, right, is so frustrating because it has these pieces and you're pretty convinced they put it in there probably just to mess with you. Like there's nowhere this could possibly go. I can't, I can't possibly comprehend its purpose, right? When you can't understand the purpose of something, you don't know how to use it. And it doesn't get used for its desired end, towards its actual purpose. And friends, if we're not using our gifts, if we're not using our gifts for the purpose of making God known, then we're not using them for what they exist for. And therefore you you're not, I mean, they're, they're like that random piece. They either, they either get, don't get utilized like you're sitting on a gift. I wonder how many of us are sitting on gifts God has given us. My guess is some of us are. My guess is some of us are that we have gifts that God has given us and because we haven't, we failed to grasp what the purpose of that gift is. We're not using it. We're just letting it sit over there. Maybe like that piece of Ikea bolt or whatever. We, we threw it in the trash because we just thought, well, I don't know. But maybe the other side of that is we're using it, but we're just using it for ourselves. We're just using it to get ahead in life or using it to get people to like us or accept us or to make our way forward in whatever field that we're in. Perhaps that's how we're utilizing it and we're not fully exercising its purpose. That would be another possibility here when we fail to understand the purpose of these gifts. So as simple, as, as, as simple an observation as it is that our gifts exist to make God known, my guess is that for many of us, it's a, including myself, it's a needed reminder. That's what this exists for. That's what it's here for. So that it doesn't go into misuse or unuse. So, in order to use things according to their purpose, I'll say this, to kind of close up this, and let's go to the next, let's go to the next observation. Is it takes intentionality. Right? It takes great intentionality to utilize whatever gifts God has given us for his purposes. It takes the intentionality of knowing what our spiritual gifts are. We find at the church that a lot of times uh, when I meet with someone and they're saying, I want to serve, but I'm not sure where, one of the first questions I'll ask is to say, well, what are your spiritual gifts? Do you, have, do you know what those might be? And a lot of folks just don't know. That may be you tonight. And we'd love to help you figure out what those are. There's, there's a lot of ways that we can help coach you and guide you to, to understand what those spiritual gifts are. If, you, if you're in Christ, you have them. You have at least one, and you may have many. That's a promise from Scripture. We'd love to help you understand what those gifts are because if you don't know what they are, you can't use them. And so that's, you know, that's one aspect of intentionality. Another aspect is just to think about each of those aspects, each of those gifts, and to ask God what he wants you to do with them. Finances come to mind when we think about this, right? It's so easy for finances to just kind of almost take on a life of their own. And if we're not intentional about saying, I'm gonna give first and then I'm gonna save second and then I'm, I'm, I'm gonna then spend third, right? That I'm going to follow a biblical pattern in the way I think about the money God places in my hand as a steward of those things. It takes great intentionality to do that. Generosity doesn't just happen on a whim. It doesn't happen sort of willy-nilly. Generosity of, of giving only happens with planning and with great intentionality. Because otherwise, it just kind of slips right out of our pocket and into whatever the latest thing is, I think. So just, just a few thoughts about the intentionality there that's required for us to utilize our gifts well, according to the verse, to make God known. All of them. Every bit of it. Every penny in our bank account. Every skill set in our mind and heart and hands.
All right, so let's go to the next observation. So the first is that our gifts exist to make God known. The second is that love and knowing God are inescapably or inextricably linked. Now, let me show you where I see this. Go back to verse 8a. So the very beginning says, love never ends. And that really begins the thought that dictates the rest of this paragraph that we've read. And the idea here, church, is this, is that Paul is saying love never ends, but all these other things do, which is one of the reasons why love is superior. But if follow the flow of logic here, what is he saying about love? He's saying love never ends and these gifts do. And the purpose of those gifts is to make God known. And they're going to they're gonna go away because their job will be done. Once, once Christ comes, they're no longer needed in order for us to know him. We'll know him fully. He'll be with us. But love isn't going to go away. So what does that tell us about love and knowing God? It tells us there's a link between the two. That when Christ comes, when Christ comes, love will not go away, but spiritual gifts will because spiritual gifts will have done their job of helping us know God. And of course, then what is the relationship we have to ask between love and knowing God? And the relationship is this. It's not as if love stays in place because it does a better job of helping us know God than the spiritual gifts do. It's not just that. It's not just a matter of, well, this is a better tool towards that end. Because according to this, we're going to know him fully. So the reason love doesn't go away is because love is the defining mark of our knowing God. Love is the context in which we know him. It's the defining mark of our relationship with him. We worship him because we love him. We are allowed to worship him because he loves us. Love is the defining mark then of the relationship that we will have with God and Christ for all eternity, which is why love never ends. We heard last week, love bears all things and it endures all things, right? The idea there is that it it will go through anything It won't stop. It's not gonna fade or flag. It's not gonna wane. Love will will fight through it, right? And then here it's if to say, and not only that, not only does it endure, not only does it put up with bearing hard things, it also then goes on forever. Which, by the way, is the same reason we said in the first sermon in this series, it's the same reason why Paul counts love superior to faith and hope. Because faith and hope are things that we experience now looking forward. But one day when we see Christ, we won't need faith anymore to believe in what will come because it will have come. And we won't need hope any longer because hope is about looking towards us with certainty towards the future. And when the thing we hope for comes to pass, we no longer need hope. So faith and hope also pass away. But what remains? Love because it's the very context of our relationship. I don't have a great analogy for this. This is the best one I'm gonna give you. You can imagine if you and I said, hey, let's meet for coffee, right? That's great that we're gonna, we're gonna sit together and have a relationship with one another, but we have to what? We have to determine where we're gonna have that coffee. There has to be a context for it. There has to be a place where we meet, right? And it's as if Paul is saying, the love of God is the place where you meet him. It's the place where you know him. It's how you know him. You're allowed to know him because he loves you. You're ushered into his presence in his love. So, we can't, so here's two implications of that, if that's true, and I think it is from this text. Then there's two things that we can say. We cannot know God outside of love, and that has two, you know, two ways that we see it. Cannot know God outside of love. First, I cannot know him if I don't love him. 
Now, here's what I mean by that. When I talk about knowing, I'm talking about intimate, close, relational knowing. There is no such thing as someone who knows God because they possess factual information about God. To say, I know God. I mean, truly to say, I know God in the way the scriptures talk about knowing him is to love him and treasure him and find your joy in him. That's what it really means to know God with an experiential kind of knowing. The terminology in the scriptures uses is for an experiential kind of knowing. So in order to, in order to know him, you must love him. To know him is to love him to, in any true sense of the word knowing. Are you with me, church? Does that make sense? But then let's take the other side of that because that I think is important for us to understand. Intellectual knowing is no real knowing, but to the flip side of that is this. I cannot know him if I don't believe he loves me. I can't truly, in an experiential, intimate, relational way, know God without the conviction that in spite of my lack of merit, in spite of my lack of loveliness, God loves me. And I wonder for how many of us that's hard. Hard to believe that God loves us. With, a, with my kids, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you have kids and you haven't gotten it, you should totally get it. It's a fantastic telling of so many scriptural stories from the perspective of the whole Bible is one big story and we love it. And in it, when it refers to God's love, it always refers to it as a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. And I love that. Every time I read it, my kids can kind of verbatim now quote it back to me. It's a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. To know him is to be convicted and convinced that he loves you. It's the context in which your relationship with him exists. And if you don't believe that he loves you, then you don't truly know him. That's the implication of this idea that love never ends because it's the context in which we relate to him. It's the, it's the bottom line of our relationship with him. Now, let me just say that sometimes as a pastor, I, I worry that I am prone to spend more time on thinking and talking about the sovereign power of God and the, the, even the wrath of God, the holiness of God. And the reason for that is that I find it very lacking in our society. I find an understanding of these realities of God so lacking in our day and age that I feel a need to bring that forward on a regular basis so that we wouldn't diminish and lower God into just our buddy, but that he is high and exalted and transcendent. But sometimes I worry that I get so concerned about putting that picture in front of you that, you might, that, that I might not do a sufficient enough job of just helping you remember that this is true as well. God loves you. He loves you. Give his son for you. Follower of Jesus, God loves you. Looks at you. We have father, a loving father, looks at his daughter or his son. So let us not make that error, okay? Let us not make that error tonight. All it is good for us to speak that corrective, I do believe, about the, the justice of God, the sovereign power of God the wrath of God, which is real, part of his nature, but also let us not lose sight of the love of God. Let us hold all these things about God in their fullness together. Yes, church? That's what it means to know him, to delight in all that he is and to not shrink back in one way from any part of it. The third, thing, the third observation is that my gifts must be used then in love. If the first thing is that my gifts exist to, 
help others know God and help me know God. They exist to make God known. That's why you have it. And the second thing is that love is inextricably or inescapably linked to knowing him. Then the obvious conclusion from that, right, church, is that my gifts must be used in love. And by that, I mean that they, they must be the thing that motivate and determine how I use everything God gives me. Everything he gives me, I must look at through the lens of, I've got to fill this, the use of this with a deep love for you and for others so that they might accomplish their purpose of making you known. That's the way it is done. So we might object, we might ask the question anyway, well, isn't the use of my gifts a display of love? I mean, isn't it kind of by default that if I'm using a gift God gave me, like if I'm using the gift of teaching right now, isn't it, isn't it true that by default that's an act of love? I'm serving him. By definition, isn't that love? And I would say not necessarily so. And here's why. Revelation chapter two, verses two through five. The letter of Jesus to the church at Ephesus where he says this. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's a pretty good compliment, yeah? I mean, so far so good, right? I mean, if you're the church at Ephesus, you're saying, wow, okay, this is from Jesus. That's a pretty good compliment. I mean, you're not growing weary in, in speaking what's true and rejecting falsehood and calling out those who are doing what's wrong. Like, these are all really good things. That's a good use of your gifts, church at Ephesus. And then he says this, verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And what's he just said there? I don't think what he's saying is that there were certain works that they were doing that were better than the works he just praised them for doing. Like, he just praised them for doing them, so clearly they're good, right? So he's not saying, well, return to these other works, these better works, these works that were more loving just because they were different works. I think what he's saying is, return to the time where the works that you were doing, the same ones I just praised you for, were not done out of dry duty, but done filled with love. Return to the time. Revive your heart, church at Ephesus, or maybe perhaps to us. Revive your heart, church at West Shore. Revive your heart to fill all your service, all your use of your gifts, to fill them all with love. With this, and, and I believe he does mean there, there's always two sides to love. There, I believe he does mean there an emotional love. Not an emotionalism, but an emotional, passionate love. Love involves feeling and passion and emotion. It also involves commitment and steadfastness to your good ahead of my own. Both those things, are, they're not contradictory. They must coexist in any true version of love. And I think what he's calling for is, I've seen lots of commitment from you, church at Ephesus, and I'm calling now for passion. I'm calling now for a heart that, that feels for me. And I think the same then is, that's why I would say, we can serve and not love. And if we serve and don't love, we don't make God known in the way that we were designed to make God known. So the relationship, the, the, 
that getting the chainsaw and using it right is all about then infusing and filling our service of God with love for him and love for one another and love for our neighbors. So I know that this is a season where we may need a call to revive our hearts. Hear this in all gentleness. I mean, church, really, hear this in all gentleness. I know some of us may be exhausted from what we've been bearing now as a, as a world. I mean, as an entire world, what we've been bearing now for months on end as it relates to COVID. And it can, man, it can feel like just one more tedious thing after another. Just one more tedious endeavor after another. Another thing we gotta do, another thing we've gotta figure out, another thing we gotta go through. And friends, I just, in that environment, I know that what can happen is our love can grow cold and we can start to do things. And can I just tell you, well done as, you, as you've continued to serve, even when service has not been what you've wanted to do. Can I say well done to that? Well done. I wanna give you even more as your pastor tonight. I wanna say well done and I wanna say, but revive your heart too. Revive your heart. Revive your heart into that place where your service and your gifts are utilized out of love and in love. It will, it will animate and empower. It will fill you with joy. And friends, I just wanna say that I think is the call of this text to see that to utilize the gifts, the impermanent thing, which we utilize now to make him known, to utilize it well, it has to be filled up and undergirded by a deep capacity to love. Now, I said last week, and I don't know that you'll remember or not, I said last week that I wanted to help you uh, think about a decision-making framework. And I, I wanted to share with you the decision-making framework that we're using in the church, which relates very much to what we're talking about. Now, this is the decision-making framework that we're using with every decision that we make about how we gather and when we gather, inside, outside, masks, no masks, all these sorts of things. Uh, different ministry opportunities. And we have some exciting ministry opportunities on the forefront, we think, with local schools and helping with tutoring for kids that are uh, at home and, and just all kinds of things that we think God is preparing for us for this next season. And we're super excited about. But as I was preparing last week and this week, I thought, I wonder how many of my church family is struggling with decision fatigue and thinking, how do I continue to make the right kinds of decisions that are full of love, that are, that are undergirded by love? How do I how do I do that? And can I share with you then the way that we're thinking through in a very simple way, because we don't want to overcomplicate it, how we make our choices may help you think about um, and understand how we're leading, hopefully during the season, but also for your own families and your own homes or you as an individual, perhaps you'll find them helpful. So I said last week that our decision-making framework is three things, love of God, love for each other, and love of neighbor. Let me just unpack that a little bit more for you in conclusion tonight, and then we'll... We'll worship together one last song and, and be on our way. But So love of God. In every decision, when we think about love of God as a church, I'm gonna give you the truncated version of this, but in every decision, we wanna acknowledge that Christ is Lord of his church. We never wanna lose sight of that Christ is Lord of his church. We obey him more than we obey anyone else. We don't obey earthly authorities. We obey him. Right? That's our first priority in every decision we make, that our decision would communicate to a watching world and to one another, to your heart and to mine, that Christ is Lord of his church. The second thing under love of God is the command we have in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, to gather, to not forsake the gathering together of the church 
so that we might build one another up in love is what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 tells us. So we know we have a command to do that and love of God means that we obey that command. So we're looking for ways that we can gather appropriately here on Thursday night as we gather is an example of that. You at home on Sunday mornings is an example of ways that we look to gather his body for mutual instruction in God's word so that we would be encouraged. But we also have a command in Romans 13, verse one, which says to submit to the governing authorities that are over you. And we take that commitment very seriously, not out of love for governing authorities, but out of love for who? Out of love for God. It has to be part of our, anybody's decision-making framework. If God has commanded us in his word to submit to governing authorities as appointed by him, whether we like them or not, if that's part of his command to us, then we obey it, not out of love for the authority, but out of love for him. And so we put those things together and we think about what the government asks us to do and what they're inviting us to think about, as well as the command to gather, as well as the, the absolute requirement that we demonstrate that Christ is Lord of his church. That's what, how love for God informs our decision-making. The second category is love for each other. And there's two things I want you to hear here. When we make decisions as leaders in the church, we consider love for one another within the body. And the first part of that means that we will seek to make it possible for as many to gather as we can and provide different means of doing so. The reason we provided such a variety of ways to gather over the course of these last months is because we love you and we want to provide opportunity for you to come together and worship God. Whether that be online, whether it be here on a Thursday night with masks, whether it be outside on Sunday morning as we're doing right now. All of that work and all of that effort and all that variety uh, is there to, because we're thinking of you and wanting to help you love God because we love you. Now the second part of that is this. When we think about love for each other, you need to know this as well. We will always pay particular attention in our decisions to the most vulnerable among us. So when we make our decisions, we think the scriptures require us not just to do what we deem to be the thing we want to do, but to do what the most vulnerable among us will be cared for by the best. Does that make sense? We are thinking about the most vulnerable among us always. And my friends, if I could encourage you to do the same in your homes and in your decision making, that's what it means for us, or at least some of what it means for us to love each other. And then lastly, love of neighbor. Two commitments here as we think about the decisions we make. We will make decisions that communicate to our community, our neighbors, that trusting and obeying God is our first priority. We want in all of our decisions for them to see that we trust God and we wanna move forward by faith, that we're not afraid and we're not led by fear, that we're led by faith and trust in our God who is sovereign and whom loves us and who loves us. Yes, church? We want our decisions to communicate that to our neighbors in hopes that they would also trust and obey him by seeing a people who trust and obey him. And then the second thing is that we will make decisions that show our community that love of God and love of neighbor must always go hand in hand. That we are thinking about them when we make decisions, not just ourselves. That we consider their needs, we consider their uh, their spiritual condition, we consider their physical condition that we take and weigh in. Now, all those things, you can put that framework to use and you can come out with different conclusions, yes? Put different inputs in and come out with different conclusions and that's fair and that's fine. But what we want you to know as a church leadership is that that's how we are making our decisions. We hope it gives you confidence that we're doing so in a manner that is thoroughly biblical and steeped in love. Love for God, 
love for each other, and love for neighbor. And my hope in sharing that tonight on the end of this sermon, rather than just kind of giving it almost as an announcement on the front end, is that you might then take that and utilize it as an application of what we talked about tonight. That your, your gifts, whatever you have, your home and your family, everything, it exists to make God known. And it only can do that when it's filled with love. It can only do that when it's filled with love. All right, let's pray together and then we'll worship the Lord. Lord Jesus, we have worshiped through the hearing of your word. We've worshiped through the singing of songs. Now we want to turn again to declaring your praise and your goodness because you're worthy of it. We love you. We are so thankful for you. We pray that you would give us wisdom. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, for my friends at home, those here, that you would fill them to overflowing with your love, that you would revive our hearts, revive our hearts with love as we look at our neighbors, as we look at one another, and most of all, as we look to you, that the overwhelming sentiment of our heart would be love, that we might be mature in you and make you known. We pray this in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship to conclude our time.